Welcome to Carry On Medical Reviews, the essentials of clinically oriented medicine. This is a podcast for medical students by medical students. Episode one. So before we begin this episode, let me just give you a bit of background. We're going to approach this clinical review in four steps. First, we'll begin by reading a clinical vignette in its entirety. Second, we'll go back and deconstruct the scenario to review clinical pearls and test-taking strategies. Third, we'll review a handful of questions that could be asked based off of that stem. Lastly, we'll review the key points of that particular disease. Step one, the initial read-through. A 28-year-old male presents to his primary care physician with complaints of recent unexplained weight loss over the past few months. The patient also notes a lump on the left side of his neck that he discovered a few weeks ago. On physical exam, he has non-tender cervical lymphadenopathy with several nodes measuring three centimeters in diameter. He also complains that he has been waking up in the middle of the night drenched in sweat. This began a few months ago and would bother him for about a week or two at a time with an intervening week or so without fever. All right, future physician, what's your diagnosis? Let's go back line by line and see how we can approach this. Step two, the line by line analysis. A 28-year-old male presents to his primary care physician with complaints of recent unexplained weight loss over the past few months. Unexplained weight loss should immediately be setting off alarm bells in your head, especially in the context of a standardized exam question. Weight loss uh, usually only means a few things. What would be the top two diagnoses for unexplained weight loss? I would say cancer and tuberculosis. The absence of a history of international travel and without any respiratory symptoms, we would steer more towards malignancy in this patient. To put it simply, based on this one sentence, unexplained weight loss, you have cancer very highly on the differential diagnosis for this patient. Let's read on. The patient also notes a lump on the left side of his neck that he discovered a few weeks ago. On a physical exam, he has non-tender cervical lymphadenopathy with several nodes measuring three centimeters in diameter. So building on what we already assume, that this patient likely has cancer, we now begin to narrow our differential. A lump on the neck, what does that get you thinking about? Well, it makes me think about endemic Burkitt's lymphoma or Hodgkin's lymphoma. Let's read on to narrow down our differential here. He also complains that he has been waking up in the middle of the night drenched in sweat. This began a few months ago and would bother him for about a week or two at a time with an intervening week or so without fever. What the vignette has just described here is the infamous Pell-Ebstein fever. What disease should you be thinking of? Hodgkin's lymphoma. This cyclical fever is not sensitive for Hodgkin's lymphoma, but it is fairly specific. So if you read a vignette that includes these one to two week febrile afebrile cycles, you should key in on Hodgkin's lymphoma 
In these three to four sentences, the examiner has painted a clear picture of Hodgkin's lymphoma. The other factors allow us to rule out endemic Burkitt's lymphoma, and that's the variant that uh, includes cervical lymphadenopathy, are that it's most common in children and that it's most common in patients from Africa or South America. While not all cases of a disease follow the epidemiology so cleanly, for the sake of standardized exams, you have to focus on what the prototypical patient looks like for each disease. Where are they from? What's their age, their sex, and what are the pertinent features of their history? For a 28-year-old male, presumably from the US, we would steer away from endemic Burkitt's lymphoma on the differential diagnosis. You should be making the diagnosis of Hodgkin's lymphoma here in about 30 seconds so you can move on to the real question you'll be facing. Now, let's review a series of questions you could be asked about Hodgkin's lymphoma. Step three, sample questions. Question number one, lymph node biopsy is obtained and the diagnosis of Hodgkin's lymphoma is made. Which histopathologic feature is essential for this diagnosis? Answer, read Sternberg cells. Here's something that you just have to burn into your brain. If you haven't made this association already, now is the time. The essential feature of Hodgkin's lymphoma is Reed Sternberg cells. What are Reed Sternberg cells? They are binucleated CD15 positive, CD30 positive cells that are of B cell origin. They're characteristic appearance is uh, with a perinuclear halo that gives the Reed Sternberg cells their classic owl's eye appearance. Although Reed Sternberg cells are of B cell origin, they lack the standard B cell markers such as CD20. 95% of Hodgkin's lymphoma is positive for classic Reed Sternberg cells, but there is one subtype a nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin's lymphoma that has a weird variant of the Reed Sternberg cell, the popcorn cell, which uh, incidentally looks like popcorn and is negative for both CD15 and CD30. What is it positive for? CD20, CD45, and CD79A. The most important marker to remember here is CD20, since Hodgkin's lymphoma is a B-cell neoplasm and CD20 is a B-cell marker. As I stated before, 95% of Hodgkin's lymphoma is positive for classic Reed Sternberg cells, so you're much more likely to see a classic variant. But keep in mind that examiners like to test on the exceptional cases as well as on the prototypical cases. That's why we say, learn the rule, learn the exception. The discussion of the specifics of all five subtypes of Hodgkin's lymphoma is outside of the scope of this podcast, but it may be worth a brief review on your own. Let's look at the next question. Question number two. What event in the patient's history would be most contributory to his most likely diagnosis? I'll answer this question with a question of my own. What are the biggest risk factors in general for cancer? 
Obviously, we have smoking and other toxin exposure, but for leukemias and lymphomas, we're really going to be thinking about virus exposure. Which virus in particular stands out? Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV. Epstein-Barr virus is the causative agent for mononucleosis, otherwise known as the kissing disease. We'll discuss this virus more in a later episode. But just remember, if you're being asked about the causative agent for a leukemia or lymphoma, when in doubt, EBV is commonly the answer. EBV is a known risk factor for Hodgkin's lymphoma as well as Burkitt's lymphoma. HIV is also a possible risk factor, and if EBV wasn't an option, I would choose HIV. There are also associations between Hodgkin's lymphoma and various other immunodeficiencies, uh, such as in transplant recipients. Another common uh, association is with patients who have autoimmune diseases. However, Epstein-Barr virus is the top of the list, especially in a younger patient. Question number three. What other symptom in the patient's history would be supportive of the most likely diagnosis? You have several options here. Hodgkin's lymphoma spreads contiguously through lymphatics, will often spread to the mediastinum, meaning the patient may present with chest pain, dry cough, and shortness of breath. Hepatomegaly or splenomegaly are also possible depending on the specific variant of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Alcohol-induced pain in lymph nodes. This is a rare symptom, but it is very specific for Hodgkin's lymphoma. This sort of detail is something you should be aware of. If you read a vignette where the patient has pain in his neck after having a few drinks, coupled with other factors in the rest of the patient's history, you should really be focusing on Hodgkin's lymphoma as the diagnosis. Question number four. The patient's blood chemistry is most likely to show what abnormality? Peroneoplastic symptoms are always important. The way I like to think about this is what hormone or pseudo-hormone is this malignancy producing? Based on the normal function of that normal hormone, that will tell you everything you need to know about that perineoplastic syndrome. For Hodgkin's lymphoma, it typically overproduces vitamin D, which, remember, is a hormone and not a vitamin. Based on this, what do you expect to see in the blood work? High calcium. And now we'll move on to step four, which is review and summary of Hodgkin's lymphoma. This is a review of the high yield points we touched on in the first part of the episode, as well as some other background information on Hodgkin's lymphoma you might find useful. Epidemiology. Hodgkin's lymphoma typically has a bimodal age distribution, meaning that the first peak is sometime in the um, third decade of life or patients in their 20s, uh, as well as uh, patients between age 50 and 70. Risk factors for Hodgkin's lymphoma include Epstein-Barr virus or uh, HIV, as well as immunodeficiencies or autoimmunities. And uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma is 
predominantly seen in males more than females. The clinical presentation of Hodgkin's lymphoma um, is predominantly uh, seen in B symptoms, and those are the constitutional symptoms of fever, night sweats, and weight loss greater than uh, 10% of uh, the patient's baseline body weight uh, within the last six months, um, as well as pruritus. And just to uh, specify a little bit more on the night sweats here, those may be seen as the Pell-Ebstein fever that we were discussing previously, where the patient will have one to two weeks of consistent fever, uh, followed by one to two weeks of an afebrile period. Next, um, you might also see uh, painless, firm uh, lymphadenopathy, and that's predominantly going to be seen in cervical lymph nodes. Uh, patients may also present with uh, lymph node pain upon alcohol consumption. Uh, anemia is a common presentation. Uh, white blood counts can either be low or high um, with the potential for eosinophilia depending on the specific variant of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, other things you might see in the patient's blood work include increased lactate dehydrogenase or vitamin D, um, as well as hypercalcemia. Differential diagnoses of Hodgkin's lymphoma may include infection, and in our specific patient in this vignette, uh, it's unlikely to be infection due to the fact that these are uh, chronic symptoms. Um, so for something that's been going on for several months, um, that's unlikely to be an infection in an otherwise healthy uh, male in his 20s. You would either expect it to um, resolve or drastically worsen in the span of a couple of weeks, but you wouldn't expect it to linger for so long. Um, the fact that he has this relapsing, remitting uh, Pell-Ebstein fever also makes infection unlikely. And most importantly, the fact that he's got this non-tender lymphadenopathy that's greater than one centimeter. Um, typically, if you were looking at infection instead of Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, the lymphadenopathy would be somewhat smaller and it would be tender. Um, Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is somewhat harder to differentiate from Hodgkin's lymphoma, but a key detail here is the patient's age. Hodgkin's lymphoma, as previously stated, has a bimodal age distribution, but non-Hodgkin's lymphoma peaks in adults over 50 years of age, making it an unlikely diagnosis in our 28-year-old male. The localization of the lymphadenopathy to the cervical region also supports Hodgkin's lymphoma, which spreads contiguously, rather than non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which spreads more sporadically. The single most important difference would be the inclusion of Reed-Sternberg cells in the question stem, and if you saw that, um, whether they outright said Reed-Sternberg cells or said CD15, CD30 positive cells or showed a picture 
of a histologic sample that included a Reed-Sternberg cells, any combination of that would essentially give you the answer to the question. For Hodgkin's lymphoma, the diagnostics are predominantly going to be a lymph node biopsy. And if you see the presence of Reed-Sternberg cells, which again are CD15, CD30 positive with these uh, owl eye appearance, um, that would be um, pathognomonic for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, other uh, modalities that can be used uh, diagnostically for Hodgkin's lymphoma are predominantly radiological, so you would use either CT, PET-CT, or scintography with a technetium-99 scan, and this would be used predominantly to assess disease progression. But the lymph node biopsy is really going to be the mainstay of diagnosis here. Pathophysiology of Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, you're uh, going to be really breaking this down uh, into first classic and non-classic Hodgkin's lymphoma. Classic Hodgkin's lymphoma is going to be positive for Reed-Sternberg cells, which are of B-cell origin, but lack classic B-cell markers and are instead positive for CD15 and CD30. There are four subtypes of classic Hodgkin's lymphoma. First, nodular sclerosing. This is by far the most common variant of Hodgkin's lymphoma, accounting for over 60% of all cases. Uh, nodular sclerosing Hodgkin's lymphoma is localized predominantly to the mediastinum and cervical lymph nodes, tends to be lymphocyte rich, and tends to have a good prognosis. And in the absence of any other information, this is the most likely specific diagnosis of the patient in our vignette, nodular sclerosing, classic Hodgkin's lymphoma. The next uh, most common variant of Hodgkin's lymphoma is mixed cellularity. This is seen uh, predominantly in immunocompromised patients it's localized to the abdomen and spleen, um, and you have increased counts of uh, various leukocytes. Um, you have a mixed count of uh, macrophages, eosinophils, and plasma cells. This also has relatively good prognosis. There is also lymphocyte-rich Hodgkin's lymphoma. This is relatively rare tends to be localized to cervical and axillary lymph nodes, and it has the best prognosis of all variants of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Lymphocyte depleted is the rarest variant. It's similar to mixed cellularity um, in that it's seen in immunocompromised patients and is localized below the diaphragm. The difference here is that it has a low lymphocyte count versus mixed cellularity that has um, relatively high counts of lymphocytes. Um, lymphocyte depleted has the worst prognosis of all variants. Uh, lastly, uh, to look at non-classic Hodgkin's lymphoma, 
The pathognomonic feature here is the popcorn cell, as previously stated. So the popcorn cell is an abnormal variant of the Reed-Sternberg cell, which contains lobulated nuclei. It's going to be CD15 and CD30 negative. It's going to be CD20, CD45, and CD79A positive. The only variant of uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma that is considered non-classic is nodular lymphocyte predominant. That's going to be localized uh, mostly to cervical and axillary lymph nodes as well as inguinal nodes. It's lymphocyte rich and it has a very good prognosis. Treatment and prognosis of Hodgkin's lymphoma involves various complicated uh, radiation and um, chemotherapeutic drug cocktails um, that you would really only need to know as an oncologist and not as a second-year medical student. Uh, classic Hodgkin's lymphoma is highly responsive to immune checkpoint inhibitors that antagonize the activity of PDL1 and PDL2, that stands for programmed death ligand, which is expressed on the surface of Reed-Sternberg cells. Prognosis is great for most subtypes and worse for other specific subtypes. Tumor stage, rather than histologic type, is the most important prognostic variable. The bulk of the disease is also an important prognostic factor. If the maximum tumor diameter is greater than 7 centimeters, the prognosis is significantly poorer. Stem cell transplant is also an important consideration. High-dose chemotherapy at doses that ablate the bone marrow is feasible with reinfusion of the patient's previously harvested hematopoietic stem cells or infusion of stem cells from a donor source. Historically, hematopoietic stem cells have been obtained from bone marrow, but they are now typically obtained by phoresis of peripheral blood lymphocytes. That's all for today's episode. Um, a disclaimer is that the vignette and all information presented is wholly fictional and uh, no real patient data was used. Our references are AMBOSS, Clinical Pathology Made Ridiculously Simple, Robin's Pathology, and Pathoma. My co-host today was uh, Lauren Blewett, and a very special thanks to our um, clinical reviewers, which include um, Dr. Victor De La Cruz, MD, and Dr. Peter Pressman, MD. Thank you very much for listening, and I look forward to seeing you next week.